Liberty Solutions here. We are a no whining allowed show on what the people can actually do about today's problems. Who decides, you or a DC career politician surrounded by marble and money? We like facts, so caution out to prisoners of their own drama. There's logic here. As Mark Twain said, politicians in diapers need to be changed often and for the same reason. Keith here, we got a special edition of Liberty Solutions today. I wrote an article for Tax Day called April 15th is Theft Day, where I explained why income tax is theft. Carter Laren, the host of the Unsafe Space Show, saw my article and invited me on his show as a guest to explain the story. So here's our discussion of why income tax is theft. Welcome, everyone, to Unsafe Space. We wanted to have a, a special tax day episode. Probably should have done it, uh, I don't know, earlier in the week. Um, but I wanted, to talk, uh, I wanted to talk with a friend of mine, Keith Bissett. Keith is part of the Convention of States Project. We've had him on the show before. Um, but Keith wrote an article uh, about this April 15th, about Monday, uh, titled April 15th is Theft, theft Day. Um, and there's a cool picture, Keith, of you with an AR-15, what looks like an AR, uh, in the picture, which is great. Uh, welcome to the show, Keith. Oh, thank you, Carter. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, so, yeah, you've got, uh, got an AR-15, which I imagine is a little bit triggering for some people. And, um, and you're making the argument. Well, let, let's, why don't I let you make the argument? I won't say what argument you're making. What argument right. are you making about taxes, Keith? Um, well, taxes are theft. And the reason I chose that picture is because what's behind the theft is a gun. Okay, so, elaborate. Uh, maybe you can show. Maybe like... you can show the picture. Oh yeah, yeah, I can show the picture. That's a can great you show idea. Show the picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? I, and and I full disclosure. This... Um, disclaimer yeah. here. Uh, when this picture was taken, I lived in New Jersey, and this picture was taken in Montreal. So anybody from the government that's watching it, it's none of your business. This happened in Montreal. <laughs> Fair enough. So I think everyone everyone should be able to see this picture now. I think. Uh, yeah, there it is. It's uh, it's an AR-15 with a auto reticule on it. The uh, that back piece, and you can see a little bit of the wire on there going forward. Uh, it has a yeah. built-in laser rangefinder with a reticule adjustment on it, so it it adjusts the reticule depending on the distance of your target. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, it, it was the booth next to me at a show. You've got the straight finger on the side. Good gun safety, Keith. Very good. Uh, so, and yeah, I happen to have a tie on. So, you know, my the picture is, you know, it's an article and uh, I'm supposed to be the IRS agent. That's that's the point. I happen to have had a tie and jacket on when, when the picture was taken. It was well, a, it was a trade show and I was running the booth next to a guy that was selling the uh, range finders to. It was a military trade show in Montreal for the Canadian Navy and Air Force and Army. And after so a week, me, I got uh, to know the guy next to me. Anyway, the so, argument. Yeah, what, what's the argument? Go, go. Tell us the argument. So, so the argument is that we own our bodies. Uh, that's pretty much the fundamental law of nature, you know, as far as natural law goes. You own your own body. Because you own your body, you own the output of all your labor. If someone takes any of the output of your labor, 
that's theft. That's what theft means. Uh, we're, we're not willingly giving away the products of our labor. So the definition of theft is taking something that's rightfully owned property of the property owner against the will of the property owner. And that defines income taxes. And the, you know, the reason for the gun is you say, well, what, what is behind the tax form? So what happens if you don't pay the tax form? Eventually somebody with a gun comes around and either gets the money or ironically, they put you in jail and then you live off other people's taxes. That's your option. Poor, I think Erwin Schiff, Schiff died in jail because of uh, tax protesting, right? Yeah, he died in jail with us paying for him from our income taxes. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he made an argument that we shouldn't pay. So you made, you brought up something which, uh, you know, I kind of conceptually knew, but uh, it's fun to know the numbers. The IRS has 4,487 guns and 5,062,006 rounds of ammunition. Uh, so that's the question I asked in the article. Why is that? <laughs> All right. And I answer the question myself. The answer is because tax is theft. Why does yeah. the IRS need 5 million rounds of ammunition? Yeah. So uh, let, let, me, uh, let me throw a couple of counter arguments, uh, even though I agree with you. Um, let's, let's, let's throw out a couple of things. People talk about, well, it's, it's legal. Um, and it's, it's part of a, it's, it's, you know, taxes are legal and it's a social contract and the government, you know, um, we're all kind of chipping in. They make it sound like it's uh, a potluck. And, you know, you just, if you don't bring your mac and cheese, then we're not going to eat and that's not fair. Um, what's your, what's the history of the income tax, Keith? And uh, tell us about the social contract argument. Uh, well, history-wise, the founders were adamantly against it. Um, the Constitution in Article One, which defines what Congress is allowed to do, says uh, no capitulation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census. So when they set up the country, um, they were against all types of income tax. They wanted nothing to do with that. Um, so they did not delegate any authority within the Constitution for the Congress to do it, and then they specifically banned it. I mean, they denied authority to Congress to do an income tax. So twice over, they made a it. country? I don't understand this, Keith. I've heard people still got around. So like the argument, like, well, there wouldn't be any roads. But as far as I know, they had roads in the 1800s. Huh, um, interesting. And factories even, I think. And, and I think they had what? factories. They did build stuff like buggies. Huh. So, so in uh, the first income tax was uh, President Lincoln, you know, one of the many uh, terrible things he did. He, he came up with the idea of an income tax and they had it for a little bit, but it ended up in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rightfully said, no, this is unconstitutional. I can't do this. So they ended it. Did he tie it to the Civil War? Was it like an emergency income tax? What was his argument? Everything was tied to the Civil War because <laughs> war, war is the war reason. War justifies everything. Yeah. 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 Yeah, war, I mean, that's one of the main, that's one of the big purposes of, of war is to get taxes. Yeah, yeah. So, so that got declared unconstitutional. Then uh, in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, um, uh, it was 1913, it finally got passed. Uh, they created an amendment, it's the 16th Amendment, that said that, uh, no, we're going to modify the Constitution and make income tax. Uh, make a, make laws about income tax. So that's when the income tax we have now started was 1913. So for 125 how was that years, uh, I think there was one world, the first world something or other it was called, the first world war. Uh, hmm. 
but I don't, you know, I don't know if that was directly an excuse. It was used more of a social program. <laughs> yeah, them Germ the Germans at the time they were they were kind of uh, they were in a bad mood, you know, whatever. But it, but it was it was also for social benefits. They said, oh, you know. So you you brought up another word, fair. Like you hear this, people talk about the fair tax and right, you should pay your right. fair share. Yeah, but yeah, the problem is feel guilty, right? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. pay my fair share. Trying to, trying to lay the guilt trip on you, but the only fair tax is zero. So, so the question is, like, you know, how much of your labor does the government own? You know, how much of your income does your next door neighbor own? Is, is that something above zero? That's really that's what's what does fair mean? Right, half the people don't pay any tax at all. So I, I don't know. Is that fair? <laughs> so uh, 45% don't pay taxes and people get all upset. Oh, 45 people don't pay taxes. I say, great. You know, I applaud them. Good job. I wish it was a hundred percent didn't pay any taxes. <laughs> yeah, I would rather take is, the money uh, away. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is the, the other, everyone else is uh, often they're also on the receiving end. That same 45% who doesn't pay anything often is, is receiving. Um, but uh, they're worse than useless. Yeah. Yeah, they're taking they're, they're taking money and like half the half of the taxes are paid by the top five percent or something i forget the numbers but i mean almost so what, all what the taxes are paid by the top 10 percent income in the u.s yeah what, what what was the uh what was the original tax income tax rate do you know do you remember uh no but it was something uh, i'll uh i'll do an estimate i remember up. about what it was it was the top two percent income earners somewhere around there and it was a tax of a few percent and they said they would never go after you know the middle class or anything. this was right, only like some super wealthy but the problem is once you allow a new way to collect money it's going to expand that's just what government does that's how they operate yeah so it it's was, dangerous so that's the, here i got the tax table here one percent uh there was a 1% nominal rate and that for everyone, and then an additional rate of basically 1% uh, more for a bunch of brackets all the way up to the, the wealthiest had a combined rate of 7%. So, yeah, under the theory that because you are a better earner or because you're a more productive person, then you should have more of your money taken. So, so well, not the theory just more, is, but a larger percentage, even right? Yeah, you should, like not only more. Just, I mean, a percentage is already progressive, essentially, because if right. you earn more, you have to pay more. Plus, you have to pay a higher percentage. So, yeah. the, the the way they do it now, the idea is that the better you are at 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 you know making money, like the better you are productive wise, the bigger the penalty, and the worse you are, the bigger the reward. Up until if you make no income at all, you get a huge reward. If you make a billion dollars a year, you have a terrible, terrible penalty. So the idea yeah. of the government is to discourage people from doing anything, right? That's what they're doing. I don't think that's their intention, but that is the effect. Yeah. And no. the problem, you know, they, they muck around with the tax rate. You know, you've heard of the, uh, they call it the Laffer curve. Like where, at what point when you increase or decrease taxes does the revenue, if I, I shouldn't use that word because it's not revenue. Revenue has to do with like doing something Spoils. useful and making money. Spoils, theft, right? <laughs> yeah. Loot, loot is yeah, a good loot. word. So the question is, the, the problem that all these people that uh, talk about, you know, mucking around with the tax rates, um, most of them don't understand the problem that people change their behavior when they change the tax rate. So the, the Laffer curve, um, 
you know, if, if the tax rate's 1% and you change it to 1.1%, everybody accepts that the government will get more loot. If the tax rate's 80% and you change it to 90, it doesn't actually work that they get more. It turns out they get less because what happens is people change their behavior. And nobody knows exactly where the, the peak of the Laffer curve is, where it you know, goes from up to down. But it's, you know, figure that it's somewhere in the 20, 30 percent. And they just lowered the corporate tax rate to, I think, 35 or somewhere in that from, from where it was. And there's an argument that is that below the peak of the Laffer curve? It, it might be. It might not be. Don't really know. I think that was partly driven by the fact that uh, it's actually corporate tax rates are actually cheaper in a lot of other countries as well. And the U.S. has trouble competing as a result of that. Um, the, the U.S. had almost the highest one in the world. So yeah. the question, like, why would a company establish manufacturing facilities in another, in another country? Like, obviously, because the taxes are better. It's not just the labor. Right. And, and, and it's weird because I think a lot of people who haven't owned or run companies, they have this kind of uh, bitter attitude about it. Like, how dare you just move outside the jurisdiction to spend less money? But that's exactly what you do when you go to Target and shop for a better price or whatever. Like, you've got money, you spend it as wisely as you can. That's what everyone does. And there's no difference if you're a billion dollar corporation or if you're buying eggs. And, and other you know, companies in other countries do it too. I mean, Jap Japan has a pretty yeah. high tax rate. So you see Japanese automakers building factories in the U.S. for the U.S. models because it's cheaper overall for them to build it in the U.S. than to build it in Japan and ship it here. You don't have to do import duty, which helps a lot. And you're, you're, you're getting away from Japan's high tax structure. Yeah. So, it's, so it's, are you it goes both ways. So, I mean, we can make the practical argument about finding the peak in the Laffer curve and blah, blah, blah. But you're making a moral argument that it doesn't really matter what the, what the P, where the peak is and what the, how much loot the, the government can get. It's, it's immoral. And you're using uh, a comparison that I know a lot of people will push back on because they say, how dare you? Isn't it hyperbolic to compare it to slavery? Slaves are, you know, slavery is a completely different um, form of oppression. How dare you, how dare you compare something as benign as, as helping your fellow man by paying your taxes to being a slave. And uh, that's, that's a good argument. I, I don't know. Maybe some people might consider a bit of an exaggeration or something, but the, the question is looking at it fundamentally right from the basis. So a slave works all day and gets nothing of his output. Right. That's, that's what slavery, that's what chattel slavery is. So the definition is, you know, one individual claims ownership of another individual and therefore they own the output of their labor basically they're saying they own their body because they own their body then all the labor output is theirs that's what slavery is uh, right now in the u.s the top tax rate for income tax is 37 percent so that's the government saying i own 30 percent the government owns 30 percent of someone's body right you're saying that you own 30 percent of the output 37 percent so then the question is if you're 30 percent 37 percent a slave are you a free man or are you a slave right maybe you're Can a you partial slave i don't know fair i'm just raising the i just asked the question so that that's out there you know i post it on facebook and see how many people say well maybe i thought maybe somebody come back and say well you're a partial slave I mean, what's a partial slave i mean a slave's got to go eat and relax you know, a few hours in the evening and, and they went to sleep right and, and they were allowed to go to the bathroom and 
so so I don't know. I get you know, slave isn't twenty four hours a day working for the owner. So um, I've got a question about so if so just I just I thought of thinking of this off the top of my head. If you're a slave, are you still a slave? If so, so traditionally we think of a uh, slavery in the very classical. You know, you live on the plantation. You're physically owned. You're owned by another human being. It's it's uh you're you're completely property, right? Which is obviously moral, you know, immoral and 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 horrible. Um, but uh. If you instead were allowed to um, to switch plantations, you could live where you wanted and mostly do what you want in your free time, but you still had to work during the day and 100% of your output went to whatever plantation owner you chose to work for, would that still be slavery? I would think people would argue yes. I think it's still slavery. By definition, you don't get the output of your labor. So the the problem with a system like that, the difference between what you see on, you know, Roots TV show or something is that you think that the the person then is this, the slave is going to go to their farm and they're going to like work hard to, you know, learn all the technology involved in how to be very productive and water everything and weed it and take good care of it. And then all the crops go to the owner. Like, why do they do that? So you have to whip them. Right. I mean, you have to threaten them with violence or they won't do it. So it just that system wouldn't work because the slave would not voluntarily grow anything and they have no incentive to do a better job. Right. So what you're describing is basically we have a system now where um, they figured out that if we if they reduce the 100 percent down to some certain amount, you'll have the incentive to go uh, go do it without whipping you. Yeah, and that's that's the that's how I see the peak of the Laffer curve. Not to bring that up again, but you know, at sure. what point do people just voluntarily work? So right now, it looks like thirty-seven percent is a low enough number that people do still start a business and spend a lot of their free time trying to figure out how to grow it and make it better and make as much money as they can, um, because they only have to give thirty-seven percent of it to the government, right. or, or some number low, lower than that, depending on what your total income is. But it just using thirty-seven as a number. Um, the number itself doesn't matter because my point is that, you know, the definition of slavery that I'm using here is when someone claims ownership of the labor of another person. So what about the that, social contract? Is it's that this is what we hear, right? Like, well, it's not that it's not that Carter is claiming Keith's output. It's we're all collectively claiming Keith's output and each other's output. It's it's share and share alike. It's just like kindergarten, Keith. All right. The counter argument for that I would offer is that uh, I, I did in the article, if if my neighbor is poor, out of work, poor, doesn't have enough money to buy food or pay the rent, and my other neighbor on the right side is rich, can I just take my gun and go next door and take 37% of what the right-hand neighbor did last year, whatever he earned last year, and then go and give it to my left neighbor? Is that morally correct? Most people would say, no, that's not morally correct. So then the question is, if it's not morally correct for me to do it, then why is it morally correct for a collective of people to do it? Like and what government. are the answers that you get for this? What is the, what's the justification? Uh, typically, I get a blank stare or uh, I get accused of being racist. Oh, I see. You just <laughs> break out the ad hominem on that one. Ad, ad hominem or confusion are the two normal responses. <laughs> and every once in a while, a thumbs, thumbs up from someone who actually understands the argument. Yeah. So I do find yeah. some people understand the argument. Um, and, and it, you know, if, if somebody objects to this, I'm still waiting because the article came out yesterday. It was published yesterday. Um, so 
I'm waiting for responses. Like, and and my prepared question is, well, how do you define slavery? If income tax right. isn't slavery, what's your definition? Right. What's That's your definition of partial slavery? And right. you know, the people I've had a I've had a lot of debates online about the fair tax, and mm-hmm. it's not fair because the only fair income tax rate is zero. Anything that's yeah. positive is not fair. Negative rates are not fair either. You know, the, the, the bottom 30, 40% of people that get money from the government, that's not fair either because it's taking money from somebody else. And what about the pragmatists who are going to say like, well, how would we, I mean, I know we kind of touched on this earlier, but how would we fund the government? What would we, the government would have no money, Keith. What would, what would happen? The, the entire industrial revolution happened before income taxes. So, I mean, they put railroads across the country. They invented the telephone. Uh, they invented the electric light bulb and lit up everywhere. Um, they switched from using whale oil and wood heat and uh, horses to get around to trains and, and, locom- and, trains and cars and, and uh, heating with uh, oil. Um, all that happened before income taxes. So, so that's the question is like, why were there roads in 1850? Um, it was possible to, I mean, in 1776, people from all 13 colonies got on a road and went to Philly, right? And had a convention. Yeah. So like, how did they get there? There, yeah. there was no government, there's no government at all, right? There's no central government at all. There was only 13 independent sovereign states uh, in 1770. Before 1776, there were colonies. Uh, the British government was not funding the roads. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 that, so that's the answer is like, how did all that happen? Yeah. Most people don't know that the income tax started in 1913. It's part of the great society. It's, it's the, they, the they Woodrow it's, Wilson era. They think it's, it's always been there. And, and the, the, the deal is that at the time, um, the federal government didn't spend as much. Uh, you know, I, I, Thomas Jefferson, he, you know, he was president in the 1801 or something like that. Uh, when he got elected, he was against the expansion that had happened, you know, in the two terms before him. Yeah. Um, they had grown the government enormously, and he thought this was a terrible thing, and they needed to reduce the, uh, the scope of the government. And uh, I, I wrote the number down here. Let me find it. I don't see it, but I, I, 139. So when Thomas Jefferson took office, there were 139 federal employees. And he thought that was ludicrous. It meant the federal government was doing way too much. <laughs> what could they possibly need 139 employees for? I don't think he'd get elected. And so he, redu- he got elected <laughs> and he reduced the cost. He, he, he canceled a bunch of programs. You know, you look at, back at some of the programs that they tried to start at the time. Like I think it was during his time that the first uh, welfare program was proposed. It was uh, it was in a specially cold winter in D.C. and uh, the, some group, civic group in Washington, uh, petitioned the Congress for some wood. They wanted to use some of the wood for uh, to help the poor make it through the winter because people were dying of cold. And uh, it got proposed on the House floor as a, as a bill. You know, we're going to take some wood and give it to the poor people. And uh, it got debated, and most of the congressmen, you know, some, someone stood up, I forget who it was, but they said, there's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes Congress to take wood that's, you know, it's publicly owned wood that is there for the purpose of keeping Congress warm and give it to poor people. They can't do that. So they proposed that any congressman who wanted to take, you know, a dollar of their salary and put it in a fund 
to uh, give to the poor people of Washington, that's what they would do. And that ended up getting voted and it was soundly defeated. Like at the time, Congress in general realized they can't give wood that was, you know, that's really owned by the people to poor people. They're not allowed to do that. Did those people starve that and, and freeze that winter? I, I don't know. Probably some did, but that doesn't matter. So the, the moral argument that the federal government is there to take care of us, to make sure we don't worry, to make sure we never hear anything we don't like, to make sure uh, nobody says a bad word on TV, to make sure everybody's fed and housed and warm and cozy and, and not upset and has all the drugs they need. And like, that's not the purpose of the central government, the way the founders designed it. Yeah. And they're, and they're spending a ton of money. So letting them spend money is, is, the, uh, is the problem. Um, you know, the, the federal government, I wrote this down too. Let me find this number. It's a good number. 35. So the federal government this year, they're planning on spending 35000 per household. So, so on your behalf, they're really? spending $35,000. So are you curious what they're spending it on? I am mostly dropping bombs on people I don't care about, but uh, or care about enough to not want to drop bombs on. I guess is a bit. Uh, that's that's the third expense. I'll rattle them off in order. You oh, can stop okay, me if yeah, I go please. too far. Uh, the first is so of the thirty-five thousand they're spending for you. Um, Thirteen thousand is Social Security, and Medicare. That's the number one. Uh, Six thousand is any poverty programs. Five thousand is uh, so-called defense, which is mostly offense and and right. poor military programs in every state you know um 3k is interest debt interest uh the <laughs> fastest <laughs> you know what the fastest growing federal expenditure is i'm sure it's interest it's payment on the interest yeah that's expected yeah. to exceed social security in another 10 or 20 years yeah. um, because they borrow a trillion dollars a year from our grandkids to to like you know hand out to people to make sure they get reelected. that's the whole purpose yeah. Yeah. And then it goes down from there, education, veterans, uh, mass transit, you know, that's in the top 10. Like, why, why are they spending anything on mass transit? Like, if mass transit worked economically, people would buy land and build a train. Right, yeah. Ask, no, I... ask Dagny. Like, Dagny thought it was worthwhile. <laughs> uh, the obscure Atlas Shrugged references now. Yeah, I don't, um, um, yeah sorry. Don't need to change the subject. No, no, but, no. But it's... if somebody, the idea of mass transit, like, you know, well you, well, you can probably talk about the train in California, but um, we're here and not even here in Florida. Uh, I, I saw an analysis that said that the uh, carbon footprint of the construction will take about 60 years to pay back because we got all the equipment and, the, you know, it, it's a big deal to build a, build a train line, you know. So the carbon footprint of all the construction equipment and the mining and clearing the land will take 60 years to pay back. And, and the estimate used the New York, I mean, the DC to Boston uh, Amtrak line as the ridership, <laughs> which is, uh, that's given them the benefit of the doubt. Oh my that, God. Yeah, this what do you think of that train? Of this is another case of the government, like trying to, like having something worse tried to solve the problem that they created in the first place. So people talk about like, well, there's so much congestion and stuff around cities and it's, it's hard. You don't want all these cars on the roads. I'm like, didn't, didn't they just spend decades subsidizing oil so that we could all drive cars around, <laughs> like paying for the construction of interstate highways. And suddenly now like, oops, that's bad. Now we have, to, I know what we'll do. Now we'll dig a tunnel from LA to San Francisco. That's the, 
that's going to be the best idea. <laughs> yeah, so then people will drive their cars less. And, and everybody's buy, buying uh, Teslas, although as you pointed out uh, last show, they're coal-powered Teslas. Yeah, coal cars. They're, they're coal, coal cars. cars yeah. They're subsidized. They're subsidies for for wealthier people. Yeah. There's there's uh, quite a few of them around here where I live, but they're they're nuclear powered here. Ah, uh, well, at least that's Which clean is, energy. Oh, that's Probably. the cleanest. It's the yeah. and the safest. You know what the most riskiest form of energy is? Uh, most dangerous I environmentally. Wind. I would imagine like wind. Oh, dangerous environmentally, probably solar. Because those panels only last 20 years and they're incredibly toxic. They end up in landfills and crap, right? I don't know. What are you talking about? I'm not sure that's in account. The riskiest, like as far as killing people, is Uh hydro. Hydro is historically hydro has killed more people than anything else. Why is that? Just like worker accidents? Floods. Yeah. floods. floods. Okay, dam spray and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, they're worker accidents. I'm going to have fires. Or, uh, oh, I heard you talking about not, not to change the subject in Notre Dame, but you know, accidents happen. Maybe, maybe they're accidents. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, kind of funny that a that a building that was built like 800 years ago, that up until very recently was heated by wood and lit by candles, and had a lot of people walking around in robes, it, it, it all of a sudden burns in France, which has like the highest worker safety program <laughs> in the world, pretty much. Like, how who yeah. screwed? Who screwed that up? Well, maybe the fire guy was, you know, his 35 hours for the week were up and he, he couldn't be bothered to, he was busy eating some cheese and drinking some wine and taking his uh, <laughs> four hour work week or whatever the hell they yeah. have going on. All right. I don't know. That's a thread, Jack. It is a government question. Though. So, so right, my well, article, my article is the government's way too big. That's basically it. Taxes. So we have to stop drive, dropping bombs on people is what you're saying. If we were going to reduce taxes, we... We might have to give up some bombs. Yeah, that's the third base expense. So it might be that we can't like overthrow governments all over the world. Might have to cut back on, you know, the imperialism. Uh, Social security is is going to collapse anyway. I mean, you know, if if we're patient, that'll just die on its own or, or be drastically cut. I mean, it's physically impossible, economically impossible for that to continue. So the government can't keep doing that. Yeah. We're down to like three workers per retiree, and it's not that far from hitting two. Um, yeah. I can tell you, I just retired sort of. I, I actually still seem to work all day, but um, I write and I play music. But anyway, um, there's no way that two workers can fund how I intend to live in my retirement. Like, that's a ridiculous concept. But by the time I'm collecting Social Security, there's going to be two workers per me. So I just look at it, well, you know, my niece, my nephew just graduated from college and my niece graduated a couple of years ago. Um, so I say, okay, well, my niece and nephew in 10 years are going to be funding my retirement. Like, I don't have a right to that, do I? That's the yeah, problem no, with the collective arguments. It's like people just expand it. So well, when you talk about 350 million people, then they lose sight of what's actually going on here. It's clear to me, if you look at it and just say, well, just pick two young people. I picked my niece and nephew. They're, you know, in their early 20s. So they're the ones that are paying for my retirement. It, it doesn't make any difference if you make it collective 350 million or you just pick the two people. Because on average, there's two people funding. By the time I collect Social Security, there's going to be two people funding each retiree. So I might as well just yeah. pick the two people. It's the same thing. And this is the so thing that, that, you know, you mentioned, right? They, 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 they are often, they're, they're producing... Um, 
sorry, they're, they're burdening future generations, right? So everyone here is like, you know, hey, we're just going to borrow some money, but don't worry, like, we'll have like your grandkids will pay it back. And for some reason, everyone just kind of nods and they're like, yeah, okay, fine. But they, they can't pay it back. And now we're, we're suffering the consequence of that. And it's just going to get worse, like you said. Yeah, they're, they're setting up another financial bub bubble, I mean, and a collapse. Uh, you know, the next one is likely to be bigger than the one, you know, 20 years ago, you know, the, the so-called housing bubble boom. When, yeah. when the government artificially kept interest rates and Ben Bernanke said, you know, there's no housing bubble. And like right. six months later, the economy collapses. Um, right. You know, the Fed, the Fed is manipulating the interest rates to essentially zero now. And they yep. have to because, you know, interest is the fourth highest payment the government has. So they only have two choices. They can either keep the interest rate zero because if the interest rate went up to 3%, it'd be a disaster. Uh, the, the interest payment would become, might become the biggest thing. So they can't let that happen. And the second thing they do is just inflation, which is the biggest tax there is. Uh, they just keep printing money and let the value of the dollar drop. You know, that's why it's worth, you know, what, what is it? It's worth like one or 2% of what it was hundred years ago. Yep. Don't worry. I mean, he's going to fix that. He's just going to print money for everyone and it'll drop even more. So yeah, they're confused about what money is since yeah. it's fiat anyway. Um, well, but that doesn't make me point. feel better that, you know, on two days ago, the uh, auto deduction from my checking account to the IRS really took fiat money, but yeah. you know, I could have used that and bought a new guitar. Sure. Yeah. By the way, on the financial crisis, there's a really good book. Um, a lot because a lot of people are confused about what caused it, and they think it's big banks and blah blah blah. And that's like partly partly true. I'm not saying that the big banks weren't involved, but uh, um, there's a book called The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure by John Allison. <clears throat> um, uh, John was the former CEO of BB&T Corporation, which is one of the banks who didn't need TARP money but was kind of forced to take it um, so the government would look better. Um, but uh, Good book if anyone wants to kind of know the truth about truth about that. So Keith, let's wrap it up. I know you've got a call. I've got another um, show we've got to do in a few minutes. Um, can you tell people just uh, what's the Convention of States project? Um, how can they find you? I'll I'll post a link to your article when I when I post this episode up. Um, but how can okay. they how can they follow? Okay, what's, yeah. what's the Convention of States? Okay, yeah. The, you post the article. There's a link in it. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization. I'm a uh, uh, content writer online and also a podcast host for it. The organization has about 3 million supporters nationwide. We're pushing the individual states to call for a convention for proposing amendments. Uh, in the Constitution, originally, the founders recognized that if Congress itself was the problem, then Congress is unlikely to propose an amendment to fix itself. And historically, they haven't. So the idea is uh, there's two different ways you can change the Constitution. One is Congress proposes an amendment, then it goes out to the states to get ratified. The other way is the individual states meet in an Article 5 convention, or Convention of States is kind of a nickname for it, and uh, they propose an amendment, and it's the same ratification. It still goes out to the state legislatures for ratification. And the uh, what we're calling for is three changes, and they're general topics. One is to limit the scope and power of the federal government basically put put the power back into the individual states and the people where, where it was intended. Second one is fiscal responsibility. Don't let them borrow a trillion, year, trillion dollars a year from our grandkids, which is what they're doing now. And the third one is established term limits on some offices like Congress and Supreme Court. 
and some of the three-letter agencies. Uh, don't let the entrenched bureaucracy just stay there for 40 years. So the convention call is for topics. Uh, when the convention actually gets called, states um, send commissioners to the meeting and they propose an amendment and then it goes out to the states. And you know the, the bottom line here, a lot of people don't realize, but only the states can change the constitution because the federal government is not a party to the contract. It's a contract. It's a legal contract between the states, so only the states can change it. Uh, if the states decided, they could get together and just abolish the federal government and uh, fire everybody in D.C. and try again. I mean, they have the, they're the sovereignty. One can dream. So the website's conventionofstates.com, just www.conventionofstates.com, uh, if you can read up on it there. And uh, there's a petition. Um, if you agree with it, uh, if you sign the petition, then that automatically sends your view to your state legislator. Uh, all 50 states in, in the union are set up to, to handle that automatically. Awesome. Well, thanks. And income Keith, tax, I... that's, I wrote the article. Let, let me finish. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I jumped in. Um, yeah. Uh, so the, uh, the article was basically saying uh, income tax is theft, the assertion, and then I explained why to prove that assertion. And then something that we can do about it is we can make this part of a convention of states and repeal the 16th Amendment and cut down the money of the federal government. Because if we cut down their money, they won't be able to do as much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Keith. I really appreciate you joining. Uh, and uh, I apologize that it's tax week for people. It's not my fault. I didn't vote for it. But, uh, you know, <laughs> sucks for all of us. Um, it's, but yeah, I did wear a shirt for tax day. You know, I had, I thought about, cause you always dress nice and Carrie always looks great. So I thought I should dress nice and I happen to have just a t-shirt on, but I thought, I think I'll leave this t-shirt on. And it's I, a great t-shirt. On. I don't know. Can yeah. you see it? Big government sucks, man. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I kind of dress it up. The, a little bit. the capitalism hat on. So, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're all set. All right. Well, thanks again, Keith. Thanks everyone for uh, watching. Follow us at unsafespace.com. Sorry, go to unsafespace.com and subscribe to our newsletter or follow us at unsafe space on Twitter, or you can subscribe on YouTube. Channel name is unsafe space, or you can do all that stuff, which I wouldn't mind at all. Uh, thanks again, everyone. See you next time. I've been watching the unsafe space show on YouTube and sometimes listen to it on iTunes podcast. Uh, it's a great show. I've learned a lot from it. They have a lot of good guests. There's the version of the show that you just heard with me, and there's a weekly episode called Deprogrammed with Carter and co-host Kerry Smith, where they break apart the social justice warrior ideology and can learn a lot about what's behind that from, from Kerry and Carter's discussion. So I used YouTube to pull the audio from the Unsafe Space show into this and producing it. And YouTube, of course, figured out for some reason, I won't get into why because I don't know, but it decided that I was interested in taxation as theft. So the next article, the next video that popped up was Judge Andrew Napolitano making the same point. So I just let the recorder run. Here it is. Judge Andrew Napolitano is here, and yes, he says taxation is theft, and I say that's nonsense, but I'll allow you to make your case first. Well, actually, this is a case made by your countryman, John Locke, L-O-C-K-E, who argued that taxation is theft because it's a taking without consent. And Thomas Jefferson said the only moral commercial transactions are those as to which there is consent. So, so you're seated at home one night, 
the knock on the door. Somebody shows up with a gun and says, give me your money. I want to give it away in your name. You yeah. call the police and you find out he is the police. Come to take your tax dollars and give it away in your name. Come on, Judge. Come on. The, taxa the tax taxation has been run by the Supreme Court about a hundred years ago, and it passed. Well, yeah, it's because, because it's in the Constitution. It's not moral, but it is in the Constitution, so, the, uh, the, the right of the government to take your income without your consent. I mean, suppose... Well, I, would you rather have us duties on imports, as they used to do in the old-fashioned days? I, I would prefer fee-for-service, because then I could consent to what I want. So I steal $20 from you and I give you a book. <laughs> and I say, take the book, keep the book, it's worth more than the $20. And you go, but I want the $20, I don't want the book. It's what the government does. Give us your money and we'll give you a service whether you want it or not. So, if we're talking morality, I see your point. Ah. Everything else is pure nonsense. I, I do, I, let me do move on. Do they teach morality at the London School of Economics? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> that we can agree. <laughs> Yeah, right on Judge Knapp. He's always got a good perspective. I enjoy listening to him. If anybody knows why YouTube picked Judge Knapp to talk about taxation is theft as the next video I should watch, I'm curious how they knew to do that. Would have been a good question for Carter. They went off after that into discussion of the estate tax, which was off topic for this show, so I stopped the recording. But, yep, he said again, estate tax is also immoral. It's even got an extra thing where they... It's money that you've already paid tax on. you got to pay tax on again because you want to give it to somebody. And Judge Knapp, who's from New Jersey, pointed out that the worst place to die is New Jersey. He said that if you die in New Jersey, your heirs will be paupers. So I'm glad I got out of the Democratic People's Republic of New Jersey. All right, a little fact check on myself. The income tax history. In 1792, the total federal taxes were about 2% of the GDP entirely tariffs and excise taxes. Tariffs are a tax on a class of imports or exports. Excise tax is a duty on manufactured goods at the point of manufacture, not the sale. Other than brief spikes to about 5% for the War of 1812 and the Civil War, the total federal take remained between 1% and 3% of GDP until 1913. There were two short income tax periods before 1913. We talked about it with Carter. One was to fund the Civil War and one in peacetimes in the 1890s to balance reduced tariffs. The first income tax was opposed from 1861 to 1872. It was a 3-5% to 5 tax used to fund the Civil War, repealed after 11 years, replaced with higher excise taxes on alcohol and tobacco. In 1894, a new income tax was imposed, but in 1895, the Supreme Court issued the opinion it was unconstitutional. So this ta income tax was ended after one year. Other than those two short income tax periods, all funding for the central government was tariffs and excise taxes up until 1913. The largest source of funds was tariffs. In 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified by the states, adding the new power for Congress to impose taxes. The third income tax of 1913 was started in peacetime, but it was tiny from 1913 until 1918, when it spiked for World War I. And it settled down to about 3% of GDP up until World War II, after World War I ended. It rose to 15% of GDP from World War II and never looked back, averaging about 10% of GDP from World War II until now. In 1913, when income tax was started, the tax was 1% on personal incomes above 3 k 
which is equivalent to 80k today, and 6% on income that was the equivalent of 13 million today. And payroll withholding started during World War II. This is when the tax rate went from about 3% to about 15% of GDP. The U.S. Constitution Article 1 says no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before be directed to be taken. Capitation is a payment for a fee for service based on the number of people. Healthcare fees are an example of capitation. Direct tax is one that's imposed on a person or property which cannot be shifted to another person. Income tax is an example of a direct tax. Indirect tax is one on a transaction, like goods and services, like sales tax and tariffs. So first, the founders did not authorize a federal government income tax in 1787 in the powers delegated to Congress in the Constitution. Secondly, they specifically banned it by limiting all direct taxes to being only in proportion to the census. So twice over, when the states ratified the Constitution, they made income tax unlawful for the central government. The Supreme Court majority opinion in 1895 case Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust said the income tax imposed by the Income Tax Act of 1894 was unconstitutional. The court opinion was that income taxes on property rental, interest, and dividends were direct taxes and therefore violated the Constitution's ban on any direct tax not based on the census. The 1894 tax was the first peacetime income tax. It was a 2% imposed only on the top 1% income households intended to balance lost funding. The uh, funding loss was from eliminating import tariffs in 1894 on iron, coal, lumber, and wool. Following the Supreme Court opinion that income tax on property interests is unconstitutional, the 1894 income tax was ended after only one year in effect. In 1897, the tariffs were reimposed on the same product imports, as protectionism reared its ugly head and Congress was told no on the income tax by the Supreme Court. In 1909, Congress passed a proposed new amendment in response to the 1895 Supreme Court case that informed Congress that income tax is unconstitutional. 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified by the states. It says, Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment above among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration. I don't understand why they didn't change the Article One clause denying authority to enact direct taxes unless they're based on a per-person headcount. Income tax is a direct tax, and it remains banned by Article One's no direct tax clause, even after the 16th Amendment delegated a power to income tax. If anybody understands this, send me a message. There's a connection between taxes and the welfare and warfare state. James Madison said the three greatest threats to liberty are armies, debts, and taxes. Thomas Paine said that the British Empire didn't raise taxes to carry on wars. Rather, wars are raised to carry on taxes. The British Empire was the largest in the world at the time, but now the U.S. Empire is the largest in history. Sun never sets on the U.S. Empire if one includes the 600 worldwide military installations. Income taxes provided a major factor in the ability of our central government to grow into the ludicrously large scope it carries on today. Every day we work, the federal government steals up to 37% of our labor. Then when we die, they steal some more of what they already taxed, figuring 37% of a slave is not enough of our money for their ambitions.
The income tax money they steal is used to grow their power. A key purpose is to win elections and maintain political office positions. As far as the welfare state goes, they hand out the loot they take from us to favored individuals. This year, they're going to give away 19000 a year per U.S. household on average for Social Security, Medicare, and anti-poverty programs. That's the biggest federal expense. They call it entitlements, but that's a misnomer because no one's entitled to the output of anyone else's labor. That's called slavery. Claiming the right to any federal entitlement program is a misunderstanding of what a right is. There's no such thing as a right to slave labor. I would like a list of who they gave my 19000 to so I can ask why they didn't send me a thank you note. On the warfare state funding, our taxes fund the invasions of other countries and the overthrow of sovereign governments. The next biggest outlay after Social Security, Medicare, and welfare is an average of 5000 per household for the so-called Department of Defense, which does a lot more than defend us. I don't know which part was spent on defense and which part was spent on offense, but I suspect a better name would be the Department of Offense. The money is used to maintain about 5,000 military installations in the U.S. and abroad, with 600 of them in other people's countries. That's Pentagon numbers from 2013. They spent a fortune maintaining troops and bombing people all over the world. There's 35K troops in Germany and 80K in Japan. And there's 40,000 foreign military personnel's locations are classified. We're not even allowed to know where they are, let alone what they are up to. Perhaps they're getting ready for the next government overthrow. And perhaps someone should give D.C. a call and let them know that the Germans, the Japanese, and the Russians are no longer planning an assault on the U.S. World War II and the Cold War ended a while back. During the last year of Obama's presidency, 26,000 bombs were dropped on seven different countries. Trump took nine months during his first year to exceed this figure. Bombing people over 26,000 times a year and keeping 165,000 active duty military personnel in 150 countries is expensive, so they want even more money for this. An even trillion might keep them happy for one more year. As Dave Smith said, if you want to know who our next enemy is, just find out who we are funding today. Looking back, his idea works, from Saddam Hussein when he attacked Iran, to the Afghan Mujahideen fighting Russians in Afghanistan, to the ISIS fighters in Syria going up against Bashar al-Assad. D.C.'s next biggest expense is interest payments on the national debt, quote-unquote national. This is because they are unable to maintain their lifestyle on the $3 trillion a year they collect, so they borrow to make up the slack. In 2018, they took in $3.4 trillion but spent $4.5 trillion by borrowing from the grandkids. The interest rates have been forced artificially low, so they're only spending $3,000 this year for the average household. But they're $22 trillion in debt and borrowing another trillion again this year. The $22 trillion figure does not count unfunded liabilities, which any family or business would include as a debt obligation. This takes the total debt to $75 trillion, according to the U.S. Treasury Department. It is our debt and that of the next generation not yet born, as the government doesn't have to pay it back. It doesn't have any money. An interest service is the fastest-growing government program. It's predicted to pass Social Security in a while. 2019, they plan to spend $11.431 billion to fund the IRS. That's billion with a B. There's $11 billion I would like to see saved. Easy. Close the IRS. 
perhaps the IRS's five million rounds of ammo for the their gun collection could be returned to the taxpayers who own it all. The U.S. government reports its total assets at four trillion. Its largest claimed asset is one point four trillion in net loans receivable. Almost all of this is student loans, now totaling one point two one point one trillion owed. In other words, the Fed's largest asset they claim is a line item on debt owed to it by young people from college expenses. And those loans have a 22% default rate. It's a lousy idea to have one's biggest asset in outstanding loan obligations from a group where only three-quarters of the borrowers are paying it back. These debt and asset figures are from the U.S. Treasury Department's Financial Report of the U.S. Government. Dividing their reported $75 trillion in liabilities by the U.S. population of about $325 million, each resident owes $231,000. That's everyone, including the babies. Or maybe it's only the babies, and it's five times this number per baby, as they're not trying to pay it back now. So maybe I'm, I don't have to pay it back at all. But did you know you have an outstanding debt of a quarter million dollars? I don't know what is going to happen with all this, but it can't go on. Would a bank lend 10000 every year to someone who has an income of 30000 assets of 40000 and yearly expenses of 125% their annual income? Would they give a loan to someone who has not paid a cent of principal back in decades on their outstanding loans? Any bank treating the U.S. government as an individual would never lend them a penny. They would laugh at the loan application as being ridiculous. So why is the nation as a group different? Multiply all my numbers there by 100 million to get the numbers for the federal government. How long before the drunken spending binge in D.C. comes crashing down? Or are they going to double our income taxes and hope for the best? Thomas Paine's point that the British Empire didn't raise taxes to carry on wars, instead it raised wars to carry on taxes, is worth checking into for D.C. The U.S. Revolutionary War doesn't count as that war was against British taxes. The War of 1812 was conducted without income taxes, so forget about that one. The Civil War was started without an income tax, but that's when the first one was enacted, and it was specifically to fund the war. Every war since 1913 was conducted when the federal income tax existed. U.S. involvement in World War I started four years after the income taxes beginning. Both World War I and World War II showed big spikes in income taxes. I'll leave the purpose of these wars aside for another time, and, and I note the size of the military dropped enormously after both of them. But I see arguments for most of the wars since World War II pointing to the government raising a war to carry on taxes. Perhaps perhaps all the wars since Korea were raised to carry on taxes. And maybe Thomas Paine was right, even for today. All the wars in the Middle East from George Bush Sr. on were partially about taxes and military spending. It can be argued the primary purpose for some or maybe all of them. The big peace dividend claimed to be coming as soon as the Cold War ended never happened because Bush Sr. looked around for a new reason to keep from reducing the military size and spending levels. Bush founded in the Middle East and Congress went along. That region has been a key excuse for carrying on income taxes ever since. Wars are sometimes raised to carry on taxes. Thomas Paine may have been right about all of them since Korea. Okay, end of rant. I want to talk about what to actually do. The show is called Liberty Solutions, not Liberty Rants. We can end this theft by cutting the power of the federal government back down to what the founders intended. 
Please support a convention for proposing amendments under Article 5 of the Constitution. Want to impose fiscal responsibility on the feds and eliminate this particular theft of our right for rightful property via income taxes. Letting them get away with taking this money results mostly in mischief. The 16th Amendment should be repealed on both moral grounds and on practical grounds. Please see the website conventionofstates.com for how we can end this theft. You know, the good old days of 1913 when soaking the rich meant a 1% income tax on the wealthy and the huge 6% rate only on income over the equivalent of $13 million today. Our founders were opposed to income tax as a funding source. Not only did they not delegate a power for Congress to impose income tax in the Constitution, they specifically denied it. The feds managed to get along without income tax for 113 years. They simply did less stuff. They should do less stuff today, too. Income tax is stealing rightfully owned property under the threat of violence. Taking property against the will of the owner is theft. It does not matter if a street thug or an IRS agent or a group of people took it. It's the same thing, just a different thief. It is immoral for one person to take the income of another person using a threat of violence and then hand it over to a third person. Therefore, it is also immoral for a group to take the income of a group and hand it over to another group. Moral values do not change just because men form groups, including governments. Income tax violates private property rights and the right to own one's body regardless of which person or which gang did the stealing. If a man is 37% a slave and 63% free, is he a free man or a slave? All income tax is theft. Wondering what can I do? Visit conventionofstates.com, the website, all one word, conventionofstates.com. It has the what, the why, and who of the grassroots organization, Convention of States Action. You can read about the three topics proposed for a convention for proposing amendments, also known as a convention of states. One, restrict the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. Two, impose fiscal responsibility, no borrowing a trillion a year. Three, term limits, the Swamp Dream Amendment. At the bottom, there's a more about info. You can select that and uh, dig into it further. If you agree with the project, you can hit the Take Action button and sign the petition. That lets your state legislator know your view. And you can join a volunteer team. There's lots of roles where you can help. Thanks for listening to Liberty Solutions. Please like us and subscribe. We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. In order to form a more perfect union. Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare. And secure the blessings of liberty. And secure the blessings of liberty. To ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this constitution. Do ordain and establish this Constitution. For the United States of America. The question facing us and facing our fellow countrymen is a two-word question. Very simply, who decides? The American founders had a simple answer. We, the people, decide. <laughs>